0: we Hello, oh, dearest patron, this is the continuation of George and Phil's interview with Quinn Slobodian. I want to cycle back to Brexit, but before then I just wanted to um, kind of bend the stick in the opposite direction a bit, which is, I mean, the stories you present in the books only come with a bad smell, you know. Mm. Political naivety, kind of ruthless profiteering, um, all the creepy, you know, implicit or even explicit kind of racial overtones, ideological blindness and what have you. But I wonder if, you know, within that you perhaps undersell some of the utopian kind of glamour and appeal of these radical visions. Um, and, not, you know, not least the fact that the idea of turning the state into this uh, purely kind of administrative function, which isn't separate from society, is also, you know, it's a vision that has had a long appeal on the left too, um, stretching back right to Saint-Simon. So I was wondering if you could kind of... Um, you could maybe kind of talk through some of that appeal mm-hmm. as well as the kind of naivete of um, of this vision.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, because I think there are definitely two conclusions that one could draw from the book or two directions that one could go after reading it. One would be simply to say, um, this subnational, this substate level is sort of tainted beyond reclamation, and is kind of like a, a direction that leads only to the worst forms of kind of exploitation therefore we need to stick with the good old state as the place where politics can and should happen and supposedly where democracy is you know is in subtext somehow robust and healthy and all we need to do is sort of like allow states to to um continue to save us i mean that would be one conclusion that um I would be uncomfortable with, but I could understand people coming to that conclusion. The other direction to take it would be like, he's opening up a conversation about decentralization. He's opening up a kind of optic, which encourages us to look for legal spaces, spaces of political organization beneath the envelope of the national container. Maybe the politics that happens inside of those containers within the container could be otherwise right (laughs) and so what about kind of forms of left anarchism what about forms of commoning that could happen inside smaller places that are not as easy to realize Mm -hmm. at higher levels and scales Um, what about turning the ratchet leftwards instead of rightwards, away from commodification rather than towards more commodification which is the way that my people are are doing things in this book I mean, I think I would encourage that as a conclusion as well. And it would be actually interesting to write a kind of a partner volume to this that actually focused on scales below the state. And this is hardly also fresh territory for leftist reflection or theorization, right? I mean, the idea of municipalism as an alternative form of socialism or a more effective site of of um, mobilization is... A kind of legacy of the Fabians upon which the neoliberals themselves were modeling themselves, ironically, in the earlier 20th century. So I would like to see people think about things that way too. I think if anything, the goal of the book, as I said at the beginning, was to kind of snap us out of that unhelpful binary of like global or national. Yeah. And to sort of say, you know, political geography doesn't work that way. And if that, if it doesn't, then political imagination shouldn't work only that way either. And so let's, um, welcome in other scales as kind of go-to categories that we will summon reflexively or nat- or naturally as we do the nation
0: So in the time that we've got left, perhaps we can um, Perhaps I can push you a little to sketch out this kind of shadow The shadow book companion volume um, I wanted to pick up on this theme regarding the left and the right kind Of in their respective roles of crack up capitalism, and your focus in the book is on the right, on the neoliberals, the anarcho capitalists, the new medievalists, the old right. But you also touch upon the story of London's old mayor, um, Ken Livingston, or Red Ken as the cabbies. I know the cab, or every cab driver I used to talk to always seemed to call him Red Ken. Anyway, he was defeated by Thatcher as part of the political path clearing that led to the creation of Canary Wharf and what have you. Mm-hmm. And then he had a return under Tony Blair on the New Labour and Gordon Brown, but as a neoliberal politician. And he oversaw the kind of the boom years of Blairism in the Capitol. And it was pointed out by an article in The Economist looking back on that period that plenty of the elements that were pioneered by Ken Livingston's municipal administration in the 1970s by city government and that were sneered at as as loony leftism at the time, they've become kind of seamlessly integrated into neoliberal London and corporate culture. Mm -hmm. So having disabled facilities, you know, is kind of just taken for granted as what you have to do in any new building that's built, Um, as well as the whole kind of culture of women's empowerment, diversity, inclusion, and so on. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering maybe if you could talk about if there's a paradox there, maybe there isn't, Mm -hmm. Um, but about the intersection of left and right in the construction of, um, well, of Canary Wharf, but also of the kind of this idea of uh, or what emerged under neoliberalism.
1: Yeah, no, I think I had maybe even a line in the book too. I was thinking about other things other than kind of uh, con- uh, ex- access issues and so on, but the discouragement of private car use and the encouragement of public transport Um, the idea of what was called socially useful technology workshops in the the GLC. Um, Parent-run kindergartens and daycares, outreach to immigrants using the languages that they had rather than English only. There was indeed a kind of like a prefiguring of some of the, what we would see as the more progressive forms of local politics um, several decades before it became mainstreamed. I think that... I was thinking about this recently in relation to the 15 minute city, uh, conspiracy and that also in relationship to the central London congestion charge, that's someone asked me, you know, would my sort of anarcho-capitalist crack up capitalists be sort of joining ranks with people opposing what they saw as like the great reset coming down through, let's say the creation of, um, 15 minute cities and the decreasing of the ability for private uh, automobile drivers to sort of enter and come and leave as they like. And I think that they wouldn't because what had occurred to me is this recent wave of of mobilization, which is quite fascinating since the pandemic, anti-lockdown, anti-vaccination in some cases, a sense of the state moving in a more authoritarian direction is to me less a sort of a version of the crack up capitalism that I'm describing in the book and more a kind of disappointed statism. I think that it's a lot of the people who felt like a kind of um, wounded attachment to the idea that the state could be a caregiving entity, which now had in their minds either overreached or failed and which now they felt you know, the desire to put all of the blame on as if it could have acted differently. I mean, the interesting thing about the libertarians or anarcho-capitalists is they, they've never trusted the state, yeah. right? And if you don't trust the state at all, then you just say, whatever the circumstances are, how can we sort of secure an arrangement that is better for us? So rather than <laughs> protesting against, the, say, the, the central London congestion charge, I think they would just make sure that they had a flat inside the zone, right, for yeah. yeah. zone one. Um, so the... The idea that um, certain parts of the progressive agendas focused on quality of life issues, let's say, are catering to different groups could be made part of um, uh, like a slate of offerings inside of more high end neighborhoods or luxury neighborhoods is something that I think the private city advocates like Titus Gable, someone I mentioned also in passing, would say like, yes, that's part of the good life. You know what I mean? That like yeah. that actually if, if you want to choose a model where Monaco becomes wheelchair friendly, but I can still park my yacht, then great. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it, I think that the, the thing that's different between sort of the mass politics that we're used to and this version of politics is there's no assumption of a kind of common timeline. It's right. yeah. like if there's any o- yeah. opposite to the people I'm describing, it's the modernization theorists right the mid 20th century people yeah. who said that there was sort of one timeline of progress along which every human on earth was moving mm-hmm. at a different at a different pace and we would all join each other in industrialized modernity in mm-hmm. the end no matter how long it took um, the sort of fractured timeline that the people in this book occupy is something that sort of, sits alongside the fractured territory that they also envision the world unfolding in. And there's absolutely no faith or suggestion that most of the world's inhabitants will ever be able to live at the same level yep. Yep. as they would. And in fact, you know, the kind of the cold realism is very much in line with the kind of Garrett Harden type lifeboat ethics, which is like, given the scarcity of resources, we can't expect that people would do that. They won't and also we need certain parts of the world to remain backwards so we can do kind of arbitrage for the hinterland products that we will continue to need right yeah, yeah. so i think that's where you know maybe this is maybe the end of end of history kind of angle kind of works a bit too which is like it's quite it's it's not the case that everyone has arrived at a common destination it's that you know the pathways have fractured innumerably yeah. and only some people are lucky enough to sort of preserving the competitive mm-hmm. edge to be on the pathway towards a secure future while the rest um, cannot be promised a future at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. 15-minute city thing is interesting so i'm involved in some local campaigning over the 15-minute city or the equivalent it's not called that in my hometown of canterbury mm-hmm. and without getting into the details of like the you know the sheer kind of unworkability of the plan that's proposed mm. but reading your book while i was thinking about this local campaign it struck me you know very much like a kind of a soft focus version of the zone you mm. know at the municipal level particularly because it would effectively simply kind of um formalize and inscribe more deeply the inequalities that are already kind of present, mm-hmm. you know, in in what is, a, you know, a city that is essentially a service sector city, you know, where most of the people who are employed there are employed in either providing for tourism or for the university. Mm-hmm. And it would, you know, it effectively kind of um, reinforce those hierarchies through mm-hmm. control of traffic and, um, you know, greater regulation in terms of movement. So, you know it was interesting reading the book because i thought that is but it's not understood interestingly it's not understood as you know canary war or as you know um mm-hmm. or the kind of sunak vision you know it's something right. entirely on mm-hmm. the other on kind of and an, the other end of the political spectrum right. um mm-hmm. so it was this kind of um that made me you know which made me think about the kind some of the uh complexity i suppose and overlap mm-hmm. in in the story yeah and one of so one of the things you mentioned um and i wanted to ask you to explore a bit more is the Koch brothers so the mm-hmm. kind of the infamous or notorious um billionaire right-wingers um, and their fondness for police abolitionism so mm-hmm. you mentioned mm-hmm. this in the book and it's at the moment at least it's something which is more associated with the radical left um Verso seemed to publish a new book on abolitionism of one sort or another every other week at the Mm -hmm. moment. So I wondered, what is the Koch brothers' version of abolitionism?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something that has been striking in the last couple of years that the Charles Koch Foundation has been talking a lot about prison reform and sentencing reduction and has, you know, come out as pretty strong opponents of the idea of um, incarceration as something that the state should be in the business of at all. And indeed, it sort of conjures up this sort of like surprising moment of the extremes touching that the left and the right seem to agree on this. In the case of the Koch brothers, the idea is maybe yeah, not so dissimilar to some of the left abolitionist views, which is that you will turn to kind of mutual aid, mutual um, mutual provision of security, communities are better off protecting themselves than they are being policed by foreign powers who tend to um, suspect injustice even when it's not there and to have biases to against the local populations right i mean a lot of the discourse has been about police who do not live in the cities or the neighborhoods that they actually patrol in or responsible for yeah so i think that idea of that became very popular in the course of the black lives matter protests in 2020 was a kind of symptomatic uh uh expression of the kind of the erosion of trust that americans have in the kind of the 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 formal law and order providing wings of the state which allowed certainly for left and right sort of libertarians to see common ground in an unusual type of way and it may be that one would then search for kind of less commodified more commonly understood ideas of zoning in precisely those those places of uh, mutual contact
0: so i mean would that indicate to your mind the left that's in hoc to neoliberalism um, and at least in as much as there's a commitment to radical left abolitionism and the kind of entrenched suspicion of even the idea of kind of public power that could be, you know, conceivably um, able to uh, dispense law and order. Um, So, you know, with the CHAZ, the Capitol Hill-occupied zone in Uh Seattle that emerged Uh in the wake of the BLM protests, would that count as a left neoliberal vision of the zone to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely considered whether or not I should mention the Chaz at some point, especially mm-hmm. in the conclusion or something. And it's something that maybe I would like to return to. I think that the category that is helpful, even thinking about the 15-minute city, which you mentioned a minute ago in Canterbury, is um, the idea of soft secession, right? So this yep. is a category that someone from the Mises Institute has been talking about a lot. And it's probably the more you know, the more important thing to have one's eye on than, let's say, the more spectacular examples of Honduras or El Salvador. Mm -hmm. Because what they mean by soft secession is not literally, you know, creating a new self-governing territory by um, leaving the state altogether, but by leaving the public provision of services, whether in taking your children out of public education, um, defunding things like public broadcasting, um, creating completely siloed, separate uh, media landscapes that do not interact with one another. So there's an idea that you can start to secede without actually leaving the country, which is a notion that I think is commonly shared from left to right. So the what you're describing with the creation of sort of low traffic intensity zones, I think, you know, there is it ha- there has a kind of a continuity th- with the idea of how do you take status quo, social inequalities, and and actually firm them up through legal regulations that give differential access to some parts of the population and not to others without disrupting too severely the idea of what legitimacy means in a society and yeah. which everyone is in, in the in the same community. So it is interesting. I mean, it is it's, it gets into the space of things that I have thought that I should think about rather than things that I have thought deeply about. But I think that the Repercussions of a kind of a crack-up capitalist mentality beyond the furthest fringes of sort of right-wingism is probably something that I should um, sit with more in the future.
0: So that takes us to... The inevitable in this podcast, which is always brexit mm. um or at least it is with Joe, when George is here um mm-hmm.
2: me <laughs> okay, okay, okay. okay, well, you ask a question yeah,
0: so we've gotta we have to um talk about your portrayal of Brexit in the book, otherwise listeners will think um either that the c i a have kidnapped us or that you've got guns <laughs> to our head. Um, so in the book you portray Brexit. We've touched upon this already with the Singaporean vision of Brexit. Mm. So as part of this kind of crack-up attempt, an attempt to punch a low regulation offshore zone into the structure of the European Union. And I want to I want to kind of um, I suppose take issue with it in a very basic way because I think it overstates the influence of the Singaporeans in the Brexit process. So the people you discuss, I mean, you know, they're kind of they're Thatcherite nerds. Um, and they certainly have influence in terms of the think tanks and the press around the Tory party. And like you say, they're the lingering influence, which was, you know, most manifest in the short lived trust administration. Mm. But it seems to me, at least they made very little contribution to the political weight of Brexit itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it was based on the promise of leveling up rather mm-hmm. than supercharging London. Mm. Um, and so thinking, you know, thinking through that, I wanted to bring this book together with globalists because Mm -hmm. in your earlier book it would seem to me the implication being that the eu is the neoliberal construct Mm -hmm. you know that was it's the kind of the hayekian realization of the supranational encasement so wouldn't it be the eu that is the zone in fact in which democracy and capitalism have been most successfully pulled apart
1: i mean i think that What I say in the book is that, well, the the neoliberals themselves were kind of split on the idea of whether or not the European community and then the European Union was a neoliberal construct. That some people thought that to create a protectionist space, especially around agricultural subsidies and tariffs, was to actually break up the unity of the world economy. While others especially focused on the competition authority and the idea that the European Court of Justice could sort of enforce bans on state aid could enforce the movement of goods across borders in a way that would erode um, national control over production. So I think by the 90s and into the 2000s, the idea of a neoliberal EU becomes, you know, pretty persuasive. Yeah. And if the idea were for Britain to escape um, a kind of a legalized, as I put it in the book, encased form of kind of free-tradeism that puts economic freedom above other kinds of freedoms and justices, then I would think that you know Brexit could have had a different kind of outcome. I think that what you're describing is true insofar as the way that there was a successful campaign was the st- stitching together of many different visions of what Brexit could be after the departure in the sort of Laclau and Mufian sense, right, Brexit was a kind of empty signifier, which was able to kind of chain together many different demands successfully In far as getting through the referendum was concerned. For me, the most interesting kind of emblematic vision of what Brexit became shortly after the successful vote was the vision of the person with the yellow vest with the words WTO rules written on the back. Yep. <laughs> in the sense that it was able to capture simultaneously some sort of gesture of popular insurrection and anti-authoritarianism as embodied by the sort of gilets jaunes, but also then an appeal to what, at least in the narrative of globalists, was kind of the ultimate form of the encasement of global capitalism to the WTO itself. So it seems that the idea of removing Britain from the EU to... Realize a different arrangement of capitalism was not what was on the mind of the policymakers who ended up kind of driving it. Even if I completely grant that would have been, you know, on the mind of many of the people who supported it, who had coherent arguments for why one could do um, a more left-leaning version of Brexit. So I think that you know part of it is is my method in the book is to sort of say, you know, history yes is sort of path dependent. It's also conjunctural there are unexpected outcomes and using these sort of intellectuals who watch things as they're unfolding is usually not to suggest that they're sort of puppet masters behind the string behind, you know, behind the, the, um, curtain and things were always only ever going to turn out in one way, No, sure. but but to show that there is a kind of a coherent line of thinking that, um, has so far been lucky in the sense that it's rhymed with the way that things have continued to go. But I always think that, Drawing out the unrealized futures, the suppressed members of a coalition, a coalition like Brexit is a good example, is also the task of the historian.
0: So I think there is, um, there's picking up on that, you've mentioned Dominic Cummings, who is Boris Johnson's old kind of um, uh, Svengali political advisor, and him as the kind of pure Singaporean. Um, but I also wanted to just to ask you to talk a bit about Jacob Rees-Mogg, who you talk about And particularly a book of his called The Sovereign Individual, which was written um, and has not really been picked up on much in the commentary. So he's quite, for those listeners outside of the UK, he's become quite an influential figure in Tory politics. He's a senior Brexiter in the Tory party. And it seems to me the story that you tell of him in particular and his theory of the sovereign individual. That's his father. Sorry, his dad. Yeah. yeah, um, Has an answer to why the Tories fumbled Brexit. Because that vision that is outlined in that book is at so at odds with the um political possibilities or you know political kind of coalitions that are available in Britain at the moment. so I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the um about the sovereign individual division,
1: yeah, I mean there is an extended version of the of that chapter, which you know some of it ended up on the cutting room floor unfortunately uh, in the process of editing. Which I get into, you know, William Rees-Mogg, the editor of the Times, um, worked for the BBC for some time, was also a very active investor, was also an interesting kind of publisher, ran that Shadow and Pickering um, imprint for a while, as well as a very important antique-used bookshop. So a man of many talents. Um, William Rees-Mogg co-wrote with this American libertarian named James Dale Davidson, a couple of different books which are investment manuals basically he ran an investment hotline Mm. he was in the practice very well known especially in the gold bug community of kind of predicting apocalypse and then immediately selling you the kind of the only means that you'll be able to shelter yourself from the coming apocalypse you know usually gold coins themselves but otherwise other forms of shares or investments in the 1980s he becomes really interesting as someone who is imagining what role Britain should have in the future as what he is what he describes openly as a kind of offshore Asian tiger like economy off the coast of Britain um, able to capitalize on as he says you know less regulations lower wages um, able to serve as a kind of backdoor to the European consumer market so he was very much a Hong Kong admirer. He described himself as a Hong Kong person, in fact. And it wasn't for nothing that he sent his son off to work at Rothschild's in Hong Kong as an investment banker in the 1990s. And he has wonderful columns from the from that period, just like, seeing my son off to Hong Kong, yeah. and, and then going and saying, like, I've, I've seen the future. China's on the rise. Hong Kong's on the rise. We're a sclerotic mess. We'll never be able to catch up. All we can do is emulate them. Yeah. And some of the more interesting kind of conservative thinkers were on that path for a little while. So another example is Andrew Neil, who gives a Hayek Memorial Lecture in something like 2004, where he says if Hayek were alive, he'd be looking at China. because He'd be looking at these zones and saying this is evolution in action. Mm -hmm. They try out things. If they work, they succeed. If not, they don't. And the opposite of that, he said, is Europe. Because yeah. Europe is a place that's yeah. completely hidebound, it's bureaucratic, it has this sort of baked-in social democratic distributive redistributive culture that will never be um, overcome. So it's a place for tourists, basically, and Americans to come and take pictures. Why are we associating, associating ourselves with Britain? We should be associating ourselves with the rising power of China, uh, with Hong Kong as our model. So there is, you know, that energy was so strong and premised, if it is on Hong Kong or China, on a kind of a bracketing uh, sidelining of democratic demands in favor of a particular version of economic arrangements that are attractive to global mobile capital, that, yeah, I mean, if they're going to be driving the process, you're never going to get a kind of more social democratic or expansionary state in the wake. And unfortunately, that they seem to have been very good at you know, holding the reins of,
2: of um, power and imagination ever since the 2016 vote. Yeah, so m- maybe a, a kind of a big picture question. Mm-hmm. So is the the fact that we can kind of see this crack up capitalism, so this perforated um, kind of like hyper-globalized, but actually not global, if that makes sense, all of these kind mm-hmm. of zones, I think in the book you say there's 5,400 mm-hmm. in 2018, 2019. Um, is the fact that we can kind of see all of this as a coherent picture only possible because... Out of Minerva etc because it's actually fading into the past mm. is instead the future going to be that we've maybe hit peak peak zones peak zone. and we'll yeah <laughs> and we'll go those will go down as we kind of have this kind of post covid turn towards kind of state protectionism yeah. um, the state looking more to to secure raw materials for the economy all these kind of mm-hmm. things i guess yeah i guess that that i could have just expressed that a little bit more concisely and said have we reached peak zones because in the book you say the 90s are a key moment for this mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. are we are we moving to the uh, yeah to the post zone age yeah
1: I mean, if only I think. In yeah. fact, one place that if you looked, you'd be surprised to find out that we we're in a post-zone ages sub-Saharan Africa, where there's sort of like mm. an incredibly rapid proliferation of zones. In some ways, the Belt and Road Initiative mm-hmm. was also effectively a version of the zone model, and they were often retaking this very ports and kind of coaling stations of the British Empire and turning them into kind of Chinese-operated ports and. Um, logistics hubs for the present era and they were competing in the process with Singapore Mm -hmm. and Dubai's DP world which um, is also one of the biggest global owner and operator of shipping ports and logistics hubs from sort of Vancouver to Senegal to um, Somalia One of the places where DP World is operating now is the TAMS Gateway, and they were also famously the owners of the P&O Ferry, (laughs) um, which is what led them to the rather startling decision to sack the entire workforce overnight and then found that they were not, as people were surprised to find, they weren't actually held to British laws Mm. and employment laws or otherwise. They offered to hire them all back at about half of minimum wage. Yeah. So in Britain, anyway, I see no waning of the zone vision. You could say that America under Biden is returning to a more strong state, sort of guiding hand, Mm. industrial policy model. But what I think I would suggest that you look for there is the way that even under something like the Inflation Reduction Act, which is supposed to be the return of industrial policy in the U.S., you can still, you still can and will do this through a kind of subdivision of the national territory into the places mm-hmm. that get the subsidies and the places that don't get the subsidies. So whether it's Amazon headquarters, too, looking for individual cities to kind of host it and give it extra goodies and extra tax holidays, or the Biden administration itself centrally um granting similar things to the creation of new renewable energies or the onshoring reshoring of chip production we will be using zones right like what we will be using zoning technologies mm. for may change its shape but i think that the the way that it kind of shines brightly as a as a as the central policy tool for like reindustrialization mm. or accelerating growth
2: is something that hasn't sort of left us and you could even argue if it's the kind of the exception then mm-hmm. the more that the state looks to take on industrial policy the mm-hmm. more that it will be it will become clear that that mm-hmm. that is that is the kind of the tool or that the exception shows how how this is um how this i guess the logic of nation or state capitalism really works
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah i mean one place where i would say that one does see a kind of a, a real change of like regulatory assumptions is around the offshore world of tax havenry. Mm. I mean, I think one of the surprises even to people who work on this stuff in the last few years is the passage of the OECD's new global minimum corporate tax rate and real moves towards, you know, decreasing bank secrecy, ensuring this the reporting of foreign account holding and so on. So, if that goes through, now that mm. it's cleared the hurdle of Hungary, which was really the last state standing in the way, um, including, of course, Holland and Ireland, which profit greatly from their lower mm. corporate taxes, then it could be a kind of a reigning in of that what's been called like Britain's second empire of mm. tax havens, the Cayman Islands, Jersey, and so on, which would be a difference from the last half century in which it's been possible to kind of keep deposits, mm. put things into trusts, r- book profits, in, in low-tax or zero-tax jurisdictions and thereby partially, like, quote-unquote, starve the state of revenue, but more so qu- sort of offer a, um, a tool of a- an excuse for policymakers to sort of say, mm-hmm. our hands are tied, we can't do anything. If we don't keep taxes low, right, corporations will just use the exit doors. So if you close down the site of refuge for tax um, dodging and evasion, then arguably you could be um, redemocratizing, in some sense, economic policy because you're no longer sort of deferring to the invisible hand that is um, that is binding you from beyond, so to speak.
0: Hmm. So, one of the things I appreciate most about your work, Quinn, is how you trace the process by which all these grand theories and ideologies um, are converted into the second-order concepts, kind of in politics, but also popular culture. And in in crack of Capitalism, you talk about how some of these ideas emerge in science fiction novels, in the storylines of online games, as well as the escapades of various kind of Cold War adventurers and entrepreneurs and financiers in places like Somalia and Hong Kong and elsewhere, as well as talking about the grand old theorists such as... Um, my season von hayek so it's a fascinating lattice work of cross-cutting ideas Um, strongly encourage readers to pick it up and um, all the details of the book can be found in the show notes so um, it's been brilliant Um, thank you very much for joining us queen